0: More than Optics podcast with Jay Shree and Babin.
1: So, thank you, everybody. Welcome to our, our exciting podcast, More than Optics. Uh, we just want to showcase the uh, uh, amazing individuals within the industry. who are doing exciting things that are outside of the, the kind of normal optometry field or optics field. Out of the kind of day-to-day work and pushing their boundaries and doing lots of exciting things. Today, I'm delighted to introduce Peter Greedy. He's an innovator and inspirational within the industry, and he really epitomizes the best of individuals within within optics uh, who are using their skills and passions. He's an entrepreneur and inventor and now he's giving back his knowledge and experience as a coach to to help others to achieve their dreams so uh, thank you welcome and thank you very much for joining us Peter. Thank you very nice to be with you guys.
0: It's a nice sort of set of different skills you've got there Peter so tell us a little bit more let's start with the first question first which is how long have you been doing what you've been doing how long have you been qualified and where did you study?
2: Right. Yeah, sure. So my journey is somewhat interesting. Um, We might come on to that a bit later. So my first year at university was at Guy's Dental School, actually. And then I failed catastrophically (laughs) in the first year. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I transferred to City University back in 1984. Mm -hmm. So I graduated in 87 from City in optometry. And then, uh, yeah, so that's how long I've been practising quite a few years. And then I've had a, an interesting journey. So uh, I'm one of those that has a fairly low boredom threshold. So having done uh, practice for uh, a number of groups, mainly I worked for the Ronald Brown group, actually, for, for, for most of the time in those early years, um, mm-hmm. who are now part of the Scribbins group. I um, actually then uh, I went into uh, the professional services side. So I actually Spent 11 years working at Bausch & Lomb. So I went into Bausch & Lomb as a professional services manager for the UK, um, working with the likes of Nick Atkins and Keith Edwards and those guys back then. And interestingly, when I was there, I my last six years, I actually was a European IT director rolling out computer software programs for customer relationship management, having kind of taken a path through professional services to product training then sales and marketing training and got seconded onto this project so that was quite diverse i was with them for 11 years and then when i was with them we had our when i was at Bashalom i had we had children and then the young toddlers i've always been a bit of a mr fix it and i got frustrated with my kids' shoelaces coming undone. And I was—I remember I was driving, I think it was to to a BCLA event from London up the M40 to uh, probably to the NEC. And I was just thinking about that and I had my little eureka moment. And I kind of pictured this little system at the time and I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then eventually when I got home, um, I grabbed a pair of the kids' trainers. I think Sam must have been about, you know, sort of seven or eight at the time. And uh, went in my shed into the traditional man cave, as we do. And, um, and then, yeah, got something to work. I then showed it to some colleagues and they were like, oh, that's quite clever. Maybe you should try and uh, get a patent for it. So I did. I applied for the patent and got the patent granted. But this was while I was still doing the IT and working in corporate, actually, you know, doing well, enjoying the, the life and earning quite a good salary. And then I, after a few years, I kind of I got bored again, I suppose. And I ended up taking a um, sort of voluntary redundancy from Bausch and Long, You know, corporate restructures happen and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and I, that was the point at which I launched my little shoelace company, Grieper Laces. And yeah, that's been an interesting journey to, to kind of find where the niche is. I, I recognize in my own circumstances, I'm really not a salesperson. I've worked a lot with salespeople over the years, and they have a particular skill set particular kind of character characteristic traits etc and that's just not my bag I'm kind of more the the back end kind of person Mm. I suppose and so my my, in all honesty my little business has never really taken off perhaps to the potential it could have but it still ticks along quite successfully and I ship all uh, orders all over the world and I've ended up really just focusing on a couple of niche markets so Almost at two ends of the sporting spectrum, I've got world champion triathletes because it's become very popular in the sport of triathlon. It, just this weekend, a world record was set for Ironman triathlon and the guy who, who set that world record, we have got some great pictures of him wearing a pair of my gripper laces, which is great. Uh, but on this oh. sort of other end of physical ability, actually what I have found working with occupational therapists, the product is really good for people with dexterity issues which might be caused by things like so autism for example is a very common condition someone on the spectrum who might be fairly highly functioning they've gone through primary school just using the velcro fastenings but they get to secondary school you know they want the same lace-up trainers that the other kids have got and we found that almost everyone on the spectrum who struggles with the dexterity issue simply tying a shoelace is able to use my product so so it's kind of yeah, it's kind of interesting. And those are my two sort of niche markets. And maybe one day I'll be able to do some sort of licensing deal with a big shoe manufacturer or a sports shoe manufacturer. But for now, I just I run the business from home uh, and that's that's kind of where it goes. So for the last 12 years, I've been doing some locum optometry as well as running my little business from the house, enjoying quality of life. We moved out of London 10 years ago and we live in the Cotswolds now, and then I suppose the final piece of the puzzle that you've already mentioned, I mean, is is the fact that now I'm doing some coaching. So that kind of came out of really some personal reflection and my own personal development journey, which probably kicked off way back when I was in corporate and I did my very first Myers-Briggs type indicator test and started to discover a bit about myself and how I tick and where my strengths and weaknesses are and all those sorts of stuff. But I think lockdown last year really kind of hit the accelerator pedal in some deeper reflection, deeper thinking, and actually just chatting to some colleagues. Several encouraged me to think about coaching. And so now I've I've started my little coaching business. I'm taking it slow at the moment because I I want to get a formal accreditation. So I'm working on that at the moment. And then once I've got the accreditation, I think I will look to ramp up the coaching, possibly take down the optometry a little bit, Mm. um, Uh, So yeah, I've got a proper what they call portfolio career these days mm,
1: that is fascinating you yeah, know that's that's amazing kind of diverse journey that um <laughs> especially from kind of first you were working with patients and as, as an optometrist then going into from the industry side which is a completely different way of dealing people and you know you're providing a value in a completely different way um yeah and and then suddenly i mean you sound very much like both of us as well that actually we, you know we want that challenge all the time and you know just kind of you just testing eyes and looking at patients all day long it doesn't quite have that same challenge and wanting to do more so that, oh. that, that, that is really interesting and I love the idea that you know you, you found a problem that, that you've been faced with and actually there's obviously other people with the same problem as well mm. no one's found a way to solve it that is amazing especially thinking about different ways of, of applying it so as you're kind of going on on your journey how did you find that your optical background helped with creating the business and, and selling a product
2: yeah so one of my reflections as I look back you know I said I, I recognize I'm not a salesperson one of my reflections was having worked at Bausch & Lomb and therefore met gone to BCLA a lot of BCLA conferences etc and met a lot of people within the industry what you realize and one of the challenges I would say is industries are quite introspective mm. so if you look at optometry I know a lot of people in optometry But people in the sort of supply side, maybe the contact lens companies or the spectacle frame manufacturers, the spectacle lens manufacturers. I know tons of people who have just hopped from one role to another role within but all within the optical industry, which is which is great. You know, I mean, we've kept the contacts, but what I actually found inventing a product outside of the optical industry where I have no network of connections actually was. Probably the biggest barrier to breaking into that. I'm sure the shoe industry, the footwear industry, has the same kind of introspection that the optometry oh, I- yeah. industry has, you know. But because that wasn't my background, it, it, I was a bit of a kind of foreigner in an alien land, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've really got to network quite hard. So mm. I, I think my experience of networking within the industry was really important. I think you know so many connections that you make and so many leads and doors that open is very much because of who you know, not necessarily because of what you know. And so what's interesting is the social skills that are needed are quite interesting. Now, as I've reflected on that and thinking particularly about coaching, one of the interesting things is, I think if you look at an eye examination, for example, actually, if you've got a half hour appointment, my view is probably at least half of that is chatting to the patient. Oh, you know, it, it's definitely. very much you know, history symptoms and understanding what the needs of that individual are and not just telling them what they should have um, yeah. first, you know, and just treating them like another product on a production line. And I think that is a really important skill. So coaching is all about questioning and listening. You know, yeah. when I was doing my, when I had the role of sales training, mainly I was coached by a professional psychologist who developed the program for Bausch and Lomb, and mm-hmm. it was all about questioning and listening. And yeah. it, it's interesting then to see, of course, you know, so there's some real transferable skills yeah. that's oh, quite interesting yeah. to, to think about. So from my perspective, I'd say a lot of the transferable skills are, what sadly are referred to in inverted commas, the softer skills. But actually, there's nothing soft about them. They're actually tough skills to, yes. to kind of master. And you mm, do need mm. to practice them and hone mm. them and become, mm. you know, you can be an expert listener. You can be an expert question asker, you mm. know. Um, mm. And I think some of those skills are really important. And, and, and I think that's really been interesting as I've reflected on all of the different sort of roles that I've had.
1: Mm -hmm. I find that uh, actually spending that time on a test is building rapport and then asking the right questions to really get inside the head or almost get inside the vision of your patient. Everybody uses their eyes differently. And if you understand how a person uses their eyes and exactly how and they understand that you understand how they eyes. actually everything is easier for, for, for the patient and for yourself. And those skills actually apply to other industries as well or, or when, you, when you're when actually talking to people, if they've got an issue,
2: getting yeah. that,
1: that that kind of un, understanding. So and I think people applying that in other fields, I think is, is, is really important yeah. as well. Um, and and I, I, to... I don't know if you've ever found this, that, that actually in uh, a successful, quite a, a few businesses where people have come from outside, They've, right. they've, they've seen they've, they're used to their particular thing but actually they've they've moved to a different industry and realized that they've got a similar kind of problem and, and you're right that they've got their own kind of it can be quite insular and then that but someone has come with a, a a problem from a different point of view and actually has been really successful so often people who are yeah. outside have been successful in a, in a different industry and I think we're seeing that a lot more now as well because people are realizing actually those skills have got some transferability
0: yeah. The other thing is, uh, uh, Peter, is that you know, sometimes you come from outside an industry and you don't bring all that baggage. You don't bring all the, you come yeah, clean. Yeah. You're like, you know, you don't oh, come with yeah. any any sort of perce- perception of, oh, this is the way it is. You just come in and do yeah. what you want to do, and, and, and you're much more focused and targeted about what you want to do. And you yes. don't have any preconceptions of, oh, no, you can't do this. This has been done before. You can't do it this way sort of thing. So in that sense, it's, it's that fresh perspective can actually give you a bit of a, an advantage, I think, in that sense.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, w- I would say that a term I've got a lot familiar with recently is unconscious biases. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Uh, you okay. know, and, and it's amazing how many we carry, oh, you know, yeah. In, yeah. into different situations. And, mm-hmm. and actually, I, I totally agree. Someone coming from outside doesn't have those unconscious biases. You know, you kind mm-hmm. of just get into a pattern of doing things that, in fact, you just can't see the outside because you're so deep into the woods, as it were. So yeah. I think that's a really valid point. And I think what's interesting, I would say, in my experience in trying to break into the footwear industry, which I've been doing for 15 years now, is the actually the resistance from within to those people coming from outside is very significant. Oh, wow. And I think um, I think that's improving. But I think, you know, Don't assume that just because you've got a fresh outside perspective, it will necessarily be readily adopted because people don't like change.
1: So Uh, change
2: management is is really, you know, a crucial factor to consider. And so, Mm. you know, I think, again, it's about the word you use, Bavin, about rapport is very much, you know, even then coming in as an outsider and working with new colleagues, you've got to build up that rapport and get that common understanding of the situation before your view might even be accepted you know
0: well people like people don't they that's the thing Peter people can yeah. you know take you within you know I think it's the first 10 seconds or something I think there was a book by um, Mr Gladwell I can't remember his first name I think it's Malcolm, Malcolm. yeah yes yeah and you know people make up their mind I think within the first 10 seconds which is not a long time really if you think about it but that also reflects in practice as well and how you conduct yourself in practice as well you know that first yes initial meeting with that patient they can sort of suss you out straight away and then yeah. you know as you go in the room and you settle with them you can see how things are gently petering out and building that rapport so it, it works on both levels like you say inside the industry outside the industry yeah and you know sure. whatever you're doing sort of thing with different things going on how do you keep on top of all the different things you're spinning a couple of different plates there
2: yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think obviously time management's quite important. I think one of the things that have helped certainly is quite a while ago, if some of the personal changes I went through when I moved on from corporate life was very much a lifestyle change where I actually just stopped chasing the money. For me, I was very much, you know, chasing the bigger salary, the bigger car, the bigger house, you know, all that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, in my personal development journey, that's perhaps one of the biggest things that's changed. So I only do enough optometry, locum optometry is still my primary breadwinner, as it were. There's enough work out there. I could be doing seven days a week of optometry in locum. I get requests all the time, but I only do two or three days a week locum optometry. And that's enough to keep the household income ticking over so then that obviously gives me time to do other things that I'm doing so I'm fortunate that the, the locum work that I do I'm able to plan that about three months in advance so my, I know my optometry schedule and and that obviously takes priority because I still got a mortgage to pay and then you know I'm, I'm very flexible so I've been married over 30 years I've got grown up kids, but they have now we're empty nesters, as I think is the term. So, you know, my wife works. So I'm fortunate in that to a very large degree, my time is my time. To kind of figure out my schedule. And I'm very flexible with the schedule as well. So, with my shoelace business, you know, I've got customers literally all around the world. So, you've got to factor in time zones. So, my optometry day is my only effectively nine to five day. All my other days and weekends are really flexible. So, you know, I don't mind doing a, a coaching call at nine o'clock in the evening, or I'll take a, a phone call, you know, with a supplier in China. At seven o'clock in the morning. I don't mind that, but you know, I can get a bit of business done and then I might go for a a two-hour hike on the on the hills, which is, you know, one of my passions, or I might go and play around of golf. So there's plenty of time, and I think it is just prioritizing. There's always more you can do, but I I've just got to the point where, you know, I, I think I want to do the stuff that is important. I don't want to be, I call it the tyranny of the urgent, you know, when those those uh, mobile pings go off. Um,
1: it's often kind of busyness as opposed to
2: business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, leave, leaving the phone on silent and just not dealing with stuff in the immediate, it's just saying, no, I'm in, I'm in the middle of something, you know, so it's taken me a while, I would say. Um, I'm 56, it's taken me a while to get to that point in life of, of being able to kind of do a better job of time management and and appreciating quality of life rather Mm. than just chase, chase, chase. But yeah, I I, I find there's there's plenty of time in my day just to kind of do the important things that I really want to focus on. And part of the important things that I do want to focus on is actually also just looking after myself as well as everything Mm. else I'm looking after.
1: And I think in our industry, it's nice that you can work a couple of days a week. And have that, yep. have that, that there, and it's, and then you can spend the other time on yourself. And you know, even even with with the, the, the kind of business, you know, as we were saying before, a lot of it's talking to people, and it seems sure. sounds like, like 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 you just enjoy making those connections as well. And and I think that that's, I don't know, if you've found that that's probably helped you a lot. That that kind of wanting to connect with people.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I understand how I tick better. I, yeah. I, I don't I don't do small talk at all, yeah. but I often get quickly into kind of more meaningful conversations. And, you know, and, and I really enjoy that. I love learning about people and what people's experiences are. And then I love helping people as well. So mm. in, in all my roles, effectively, in some way, whether it's my optometry, whether it's providing my little shoelace product or whether it's providing coaching, I get tremendous satisfaction from that because each of those roles in some way is actually helping someone else. And I think that service is very much something that gives the giver as much um, satisfaction as, or if not more than the receiver, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think coming to that place rather than, as I say, you know, when I was younger, just, thinking much more materialistically, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've come to a much calmer place in life and, 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 you know, that works well.
0: Yeah. And I think with the pandemic, that's, that's been a lot of people's experiences. They've had to reevaluate what they're doing, how they're doing yeah. it, whether things actually stack up financially and also, emotionally and physically you know you've got to think about how you're moving forward sort of thing so thinking about that then what's the biggest surprise you've had in the last sort of say 12 months and and why the
2: biggest surprise Mm -hmm. gosh that's that's a good question i suppose in many ways it's just realizing how resilient we all are i think it'll be interesting to see how we come out of this pandemic I think just experiencing a pandemic is is a bit of a shocker for us all you know Mm. I think we all blissfully poodle along in in ignorance you know Mm. thinking Mm. oh we're not subject in the UK you know we're not subject to a tsunami or we're not subject to famine or we're not you know and all of a sudden you know some microbial agent just messes up our whole society Mm. so I think you know you look at the, the tragedy of the illnesses and deaths that have happened but I think from looking out at the world, I'm actually really grateful that we've gone through what we've gone through because Mm -hmm. I think it's really um, been a, a kind of point to break a certain pattern that, you know, the Western population of the globe were kind of going down. And I think it's really made a lot of people stop and think about their own lives. And I think that's been a real positive to come out of this you know i think a lot of people are reevaluating how much time they're spending doing mm. various different things and I, and i think that's great that we're actually kind of engaging with a slightly mm. deeper thinking process
0: it's like a reset isn't it in a way it, it is a reset, reset. As you say because we're not we don't get the the, the weather conditions that the places get we don't want anything too much we don't want too much cold we don't want too much hot or anything like that that's <laughs> that's something we're not very good at either we're, we're very middling in that sense but equally yeah. we've not come through anything like that before so this is a reset button i agree totally in that sense so, uh, you know of, of of where it is i think the other thing that's um, sort of interesting is that as a journey like you say with the products and with what you've done there are points where you, you might uh, think, "Oh, that was that, that was a bit of a boo-boo," or "This was a failure," or "I shouldn't have done it this way."
2: Yeah, as <laughs> I was reflecting on talking to you, you know, one of my favorite podcasts actually is "How to Fail," with uh, author and, Liz- and journalist Elizabeth Day, and it's basically uh, every guest is asked to bring three failures to the podcast, and then they discuss it. And and you know, my journey is very much a journey learning from failures. Absolutely. And I think I'm absolutely not afraid of failing because every failure is an opportunity to then learn something new. Uh, And I think, you know, one of the the biggest things we battle in society today is the whole culture of perfectionism, particularly on social media and uh, some of the images that are constantly projected and, and the products that are sold to us. And I think actually nobody learns anything unless they actually push the boundaries to the point at which they do fail. And then they figure out, okay, so that's the breaking point or that's the point at which it goes wrong. Therefore, that's the point at which I need to think, okay, now I need to change tack. So like I said, you know, I did a year at dental school and failed that miserably. (laughs) Um, That's what put me into optometry. In some respects, I look at my little shoelace product and, and whilst I've got a nice little cottage industry, I failed at developing a big company, but actually you know, again, when I look at my own journey, I think where I am today is the right place. I could have been in a very different place, but I'm less worried about the material circumstances. And I'm much more happy about the relationships I've got with my wife, with my kids, with my friends, and the world just in general, you know, I think, you know, I've changed my priorities. And I think a lot of that, though, has been through being ready to fail, embrace failure, learn from failure, and move on rather than being constantly afraid of failing and constantly chasing that perfectionist attitude, which you'll never achieve. And so you just set yourself up for the disappointment so many times.
1: I think that 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 is something really important. When you're in in optometry, for example, you spent three years at university, then you spent another year training and you've got this kind of like a kind of a sunk cost bias where you think I've spent all this time, I don't want to change or I don't want to do something else. It's going to be a failure, but actually, you can make that change, and still, when you look back, you think actually, you know, what, it was worthwhile. But a lot of people are fearful of making that change. You know, you're right. They often the worry about failing, but actually, it's not failing. You just found a different way to do something or a different way not to do something.
0: I think the the other thing is, if you think about it, if you don't fail, you won't learn. So in in that respect, you, you you've got to, you've got to you know push through and, and do the best you can in that sense. In failing. We're told, are not we, we want to make sure it's right, we want to make sure it's correct, but that isn't always the case. Uh, you know, you have to learn somewhere. <laughs> to me, that's a key message. If somebody told me that very early on, I, I probably would have yeah. done a lot more things.
2: Yeah, I look at my children, for example, and I think as parents, we can overprotect our children. And and I heard someone say to me once, you know, would you rather have safe children or would you have rather have strong children? Ooh. And I think we overprotect children from experience in some respects that when they finally leave the nest that actually they've not experienced failure and actually Mm -hmm. when you're in your parents home with you know your parents supporting you that's actually the best place to experience failure because you've got the best support network and yet I think we're often too worried about letting people that are in our care actually Mm -hmm. Just you know, go too fast or go mm. to the edge, or you know. Of course, I'm not saying you know, don't be reckless in terms of safety, but we have. I think the pendulum has swung too far in terms yeah. of overprotecting, which means we're not necessarily developing stronger. And I think that applies in all areas of life: people that work for you, students, etc., etc. You know, so mm. so it's a fine line between letting people push. The barrier push the envelope or whatever phrase you want to use far enough so that it breaks they fail they fall down and learn from that rather than saying oh no 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 don't don't do that and, and they never fail they and actually your point Jashu, they never learn because every failure is a learning opportunity
0: mm, I, I like <laughs> using feedback people go sure. oh you know I, I just say oh that's great feedback thanks very much i'll, I'll try and utilize that because if you say failure it sounds different to saying feedback I, so i say it's I, basic I so, yeah. collections and things you know, say, okay, we welcome any feedback that you want to give us about your glasses. Don't feel that uh, it's 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 difficult to come back in when it's it's all good. It's all feedback. And then my sure. parents love feedback and they're like, Oh. Oh, all right then. Okay, yeah. So, so you know, anyways, <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. So, I think it's you know sometimes using the right words can make a difference. You know, uh, sure. It, it, it's it's using as you say, failure is a learning curve, and that's that's an important thing. Babin, you were saying?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I was just saying it. it it's it's how do you get that mindset, and how do you get where people, you know, you know, you know the, about the growth mindset and a fixed mindset, and and it's kind of having that that growth mindset, and it's very easy, especially in a the corporate culture, to have this kind of fear of failure because it's you know you've got this chain of command all the way and it and you get this mm. thing of people playing very very safe yeah and you know you will do the thing that would would get you into least trouble as opposed to, to doing something that could be quite remarkable but where sure. there's a risk involved there and mm. and and it's, mm. it's kind of allowing even in the corporate culture or, or within a, a company culture that that you know you can take a take a risk to a certain degree and and it's you know, you can grow from there, develop from there, and you can, you know, develop something new. I think that there'd be a lot more innovation within the industry.
0: Mm-hmm. But that also comes right in from, from also having a good mentor and having a good coach, surely, Peter. Both of you would, would agree with that. You know, it's the people that are around you that guide you, hone you, get you through that those initial first years of any career, optometry, dispensing optician, whatever. You know, those those people that you meet, those connections that you make, surely, you know, if you have a really good supervisor who says, yeah, okay, cool, do it. Let's see what happens. You know, yeah. knowing full well that actually it isn't going to work. <laughs> Yeah. You know, but but let's let's give it a go. Let, let her do it and see what happens, you know. And then surprisingly yeah. it does work and they're like, uh, oh, okay, well good, well done. You know, thinking, why, why didn't I think of that, you know. So yeah. it's a two-way process, isn't it? In terms oh of definitely, side, yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, and I think I it. think just just allowing them to have some kind of safe failures. I always remember as as a pre reg supervisor, I had a had a patient who had a glass eye. So I'd always call the pre-reg down and say, look, can you do ophthalmoscopy on that, that, that without saying anything? And I'd know, <laughs> the patient would know. Right. And then you'd, you'd see the pre-reg trying to fiddle around and see. And then occasionally they'll be like, yeah, I can see this. Or occasionally be like, I can't see anything. And then and you can say, look, take a step back. Let's just see what's happened. And, you know, things like this happen. You know, you've got to be able to understand what the, what the process is. And it's um, I think it, it can be a very uh, important learning process to have those those situations. Who, who yeah, was think...
0: your mentor Peter? Was there, was there anybody in your in your in your career that was a mentor or somebody you think oh god if I'd if not met this person things would be different?
2: Interestingly if I'm honest no I mean I've met okay. some amazing people along the way who've been inspirational for sure. Yeah. I've not had one person throughout or or even for a sustained period that that was like my go-to mm-hmm. interestingly mm-hmm. so I've been lucky to interface with a lot of people but I wouldn't say I'd, I'd ever had a mentor, which is interesting because I think you know mentorship is is really important. So I did. I was very fortunate. I did five years locum work with a good friend of mine, Nick Rumney, at BBR Optometry. Oh, yeah. So so you know Nick is a, an absolute genius in the field, in my opinion, and he's got one of these encyclopedic memories. And what he doesn't know is not worth knowing. So you know he he's a good mate, and you know so I've got friends like that. I have got a network of trusted people that I go to but not in a in a direct mentorship so I have a good network and I think that's really important but I just wanted to maybe pick up on something you were saying there because I think I think one of the challenges is is the lack of culture of trust in society and I, I mean I talked about safety uh, with kids but to kind of counter that one of the things I think there's not in work which speaks to the lack of trust is what I, what's called psychological safety, which is that whole environment where you feel safe in your workplace and you trust the relationships you have in your workplace to be able to raise issues and concerns and questions when you have them. And again, I think that's a culture of the perfectionism culture that we have, mm-hmm. where you just yeah. don't want to get things wrong. And I've seen it with some friends and colleagues outside in the industry where they've got people around them, but they're so controlling and micromanaging and 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 perfection that everything is dependent on them Mm -hmm. and they might delegate something but they only delegate what they are absolutely certain that person can do and they Mm -hmm. don't actually give them the space to kind of push their own boundary Mm -hmm. and and I Mm -hmm. think that's because there's not that they don't trust them (laughs) you know and and the trust is really important so I would much rather have someone who I've developed a relationship of trust with so that if I give them something the trust in our relationship is at the point where when they get stuck their response is they come find me rather than they duck and dive and hide and cover up and and kind of like are afraid of you know just even coming to me so that's a massive I think a, a real cultural challenge in most oh, workplaces at the moment, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, especially absolutely. in corporate, corporate, and and in the healthcare industry as well, because um, yeah. healthcare industry, there's a lot of pride, a lot of ego, um, absolutely, and 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 I think especially when when it, uh, maybe more in the medical field, you know, if it would be lawsuit or something like that, and someone's career or reputation would get affected. Uh, and you've got other industries like say the airline industry where actually they, they 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 do spend a lot of time putting safety checks in in place and and it's a lot more open to if someone is, is aware of some an issue there will be a, 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 you know they wouldn't take it wouldn't be like that blame culture it would be a, a, mm. a culture of let's see what we can do to push things forward or uh, avoid yeah. issues and, and things so it's 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 a different um different way and i think that that is a problem within the within a lot of the corporate and within a lot of the these industries well, I, I,
2: i'm sure that was you know probably if you look back at it that was the, that was the cause of you know the the recessions <laughs> you know that we've had yeah. and the the bubble of um, what was it 2008 you know and mm. you know the subprime stuff in the states and all of that stuff is just stuff went hidden and there was pressures yeah. and you know and I, and I think it's it is good to see certainly in in the research and learning i'm doing is slowly coming in that it's much more normal for senior manager to have a coach for example to look mm. at some of those mm. skills actually I've been delighted to see that the AOP has launched a coaching and mentoring program that's, right, that's yeah. gonna that's mm. gonna be a voluntary program that you know I've signed up for where people with more experience and time in the industry can actually volunteer some time to to help someone younger in our profession yeah, yeah. Who, mm. who might be struggling I think that's a tremendous initiative
0: yeah, ABDO's got a mentoring uh, platform as well. Um, it has, has it? A, okay, that's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah.
2: Sort of yeah.
0: And I think that's important because like you say, people sometimes are a bit lost. They don't know where's the best to, or who to talk to or how to how to get past that point. And like you say, if the culture in their own sort of network isn't there, you know, in terms of work or whatever, then where do they go? And, you know, and, and that can impact people in different ways. You know, it can Im- impact them on an emotional level, impact them in terms of what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So you have to reach out really and talk to somebody and say, right, okay, this is where I am.
2: Yeah, I would say one one of the interesting personal experiences I've got is whilst I love the flexibility of locum work, (laughs) because it really facilitates my portfolio career. There's a real lack of connection with the companies because you're still treated pretty much as an outsider. So, for example, when it came to sorting out lateral test flows, for example, for all the people in the practice, oh, yes. Yes, yes. nobody thought to say, oh, Peter needs to be doing that every, uh, twice yeah, yeah, a week as well. Absolutely. You know, yeah. so it, it was left to, to me to sort that out. You yeah, know? Yeah. And yet I, I'm in there, in their practice. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think locum, because, you know, locum work is so prevalent in our industry. Very yeah. much so. um, I mean, I, I in, think...
1: in, in practice, we've we stopped using the word locum. Um, I because do. I think okay. it, it did have the yeah, optometrists they're, uh, I think there was automatically this barrier that would come from the staff and the patients as well you know they'll be like oh we got, oh, got a locum on that that day was, actually no it's a, our, our regular optometrist you know we we spend time trying to build up the connection with it with the optometrist as well as the, the kind of patients so I, I think that that often that, that mindset needs to change I
2: think it does it does yeah
0: and and the other thing is if you do involve that person and make them feel a part of it then then that's so much better for the patient because they are they
2: are are part of the team yeah i mean
1: they're they're, they're providing the surface as 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 part of the business and the values of the business should should be coming through every member of the staff and they should they should feel part of the journey yeah i
0: I, I like i like (laughs) working places i like working places a locum where you can't really tell i'm a locum they support you in such a way as they yeah yeah they can tell yeah. if You're the a
2: remember of the staff yeah the you're patient a asks a question
0: and they think Jay won't be able to answer that question because she doesn't know the pathway. They'll go, oh, yeah. Jay, do you want me to help you with that? And I'll go, yes, please, because they've clocked it already. And that's what you call being supportive and and yeah. just, you know, being able to do that sort
1: of thing. You know, you're working as a team on a on a, a common goal, really.
2: Uh, yeah, I agree. Mm. My experience and I've worked for, you know, like say, high-end independents like BBR Optometry, where I was absolutely treated as one of the optometrists yeah. and I was part of the team and that was totally I think my experience of working for the big national chains is totally different. I actually think that, you know, there's a lot, a lot could be learned in how they do that. But obviously, we're in an industry as well, where practice delivered comes in very different formats from your high end independent practice to your big national chains. It's quite a spectrum of service yeah. offerings and yeah. structures
1: is that personality as well you know you, you'll get people who want to receive the service in, in, in on the on that personality that, that we're actually giving the practice you know you use saying that so you want to spend time to get to know the person while someone may just want to be in and out they want a pair of glass and they can get up get sure. out there. and and there's kind of needs for all those different ways of of, of kind of providing the the, the kind of service and, and i think that that fit is very very important as well yeah
2: yeah,
0: you talked about research, you mentioned research, you dropped that little word in the conversation a couple of sentences <laughs> ago. So what is happening at the moment? So what things are you researching right now? Where Where's that leading? Because I think, I don't know, really, I don't know whether as opticians, optometrists, dispensing opticians, we think about research, certainly, you know, maybe... You thought you think about it in terms of what you're going to do next, but you know what's your what's ticking your boxes? Research-wise, at the moment?
2: yeah. So I mean, in all honesty, most of my research is around the coaching space at the moment. Ah, because, okay. Because I'm doing qualifications in that. However, you know, some of the research I'm doing, I'm fascinated by neuroscience at the moment. Oh, okay. And, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and epigenetics. You know, those. I i, I I'm, my mind is just completely. <laughs> bursting when it comes to what I'm learning from the experts in neuroscience just how the brain actually works you know and actually challenging some of my 30 year old training in in optometry now about the visual cortex you know and Mm -hmm. and some of that stuff and actually because the the biometry and the 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 means to measure activity in the brain now is is at such a amazing level Mm -hmm. you know what we thought In the past has really been challenged and the 86 billion neurons in our three pounds of brain is actually extremely fluid and flexible. And I I just find that absolutely fascinating, you know, to see some of the experiments. I'm reading a book at the moment that talks about how you know they're using sensory devices on the skin or in the ear to actually help people see and it's it's just amazing some of that stuff so some of the stuff I'm learning as well even around coaching you know some of the stuff I've alluded to already it's around the cultures of trust cultures of perfectionism cultures of vulnerability and as automation and artificial intelligence and data processing ramps up to these incredible speeds that humans can never achieve Mm, mm. actually what does that leave us human beings to do and what's really interesting is actually the really clever stuff that we can become even more expert in is the whole bit coming right back to the start of the conversation is our questioning and listening Mm. and relating Mm. skills because you know that stuff is the stuff that the machine still can't do and and probably never will be able to do you know Mm. and and that's where as human beings i'm fascinated and that's you know the stuff that I I think you know can be brought into all aspects of life, including mm. practice management, eye appointments, etc. etc.
0: Sounds good. Sounds good. I've got a couple of quick fire questions now. Let's see okay. how you do these. So short answers, not big long answers, shorter answers. No problem. So what would your parents describe you do for a living?
2: Oh, uh, an optometrist. Yes. What's the best
0: compliment you have ever received?
2: Oh, um, just that somebody who's completely not from my kind of social demographic structure. Recently just said they felt really safe in one of our uh, sessions.
0: Oh, great. And what's your favourite restaurant and the favourite dish you would order?
2: Oh, wow. Gosh. So my favourite restaurant is, is a completely spoilt restaurant, which is, I can't even remember it, it's on Lake Como. <laughs> that oh, as Lake part of Como, a birth- nice. As part of a birthday experience, we hired a speedboat and we we went to the restaurant in the boat, had an exceptional um, meal in the little village of Bellagio on Lake Como, and then mm-hmm. got back in the boat and drove away. And it was all oh, just wow. about that the, the yeah. that whole experience, you know. But the food was sensational. And just the whole day experience. And it was on my 55th birthday, actually. So it was it was perfect. Uh,
0: <laughs> amazing. That sounds That yeah. sounds a good one. That, that's one to clock up, <laughs> isn't it? <And> keep keep <laughs> your yeah. back pocket and pull out when you need it for a big birthday
2: thing. That's a good one. Yes.
1: What would you tell yourself, with all your knowledge now, what would you tell yourself when you're either just starting out in the kind of optometry Yeah, career?
2: it's a great question. I would very much um, tell my younger self, particularly to to focus and think a bit more deeply about who I am rather than what I do.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that that needs a little bit of reflecting, doesn't it? Who I am to what I do. Because I think we are very defined by our roles, aren't we?
2: Yes. And we're human beings. We're not human doings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you like know? It. So, so I think, you know, it's very much about you know when when I was 18 I was very much pushed into a profession whether it was you know an accountant a lawyer a medical profession or whatever it was and I think if I had it all over again I'm not sure I'd choose a different journey because Mm. I've ended up having an amazing journey Mm.
1: um but all elements of the journey have made a difference haven't they to to each stage yeah in in your life haven't they
2: and at this point in life, at fifty-six, and being much closer to retirement, if I want to retire, I'm I'm actually doing a lot of the work now that probably would have been helpful to do thirty years ago, perhaps.
0: Mm. Mm. No, no, but that's fine. You, you know, you, you know, I, I think I
1: think our, our parents do. Um, oh. they obviously want us to, to, to do have, a, have a, a steady career. I mean, that's that's the way that they've been brought up. But at times when there was uncertainty, or times when yeah. there was scarcity, and they yeah. say, right, well, you know, if you've got a profession under your belt. Then yeah. you know you're always going to have a job, sure. and then actually we we're now we're lucky we're in that place now where we can have that safety to then expand and do something something different. Yeah, as and, little...
2: and my my profession has provided a fabulous life for me over the last mm. thirty years, and so mm. that's been amazing. Would I do it differently? I probably absolutely would, but I have mm. no regrets about my journey then, and yeah. where where I am. I don't think we should. Again, it comes back to. We shouldn't be defined by what we do. Mm. Mm. You know, we should be defined by who we are as a person.
0: And I think that's that's important really to remember even pre-pandemic and even now more so post pandemic because people now sure. are rejigging. And that's part of the mm. reason we of the podcast really that me and Pavin talked about it and thought, actually, people are redefining what they do because they've actually realized that, yes, you, you know, you've trained to be an optometrist, you've trained to be a dispensing optician, a contact lens optician, whatever it is, but sure. actually with a whole complete person, one, and therefore if you have a creative element, if you have a, uh, you know, an entrepreneurial sort of uh, push about you, then why wouldn't you do something else and, and get on with it uh, and and have the freedom to do so? So that's that sort of part of the reason we're trying to do this podcast. It's really, to... to sure. Make people understand that it's fine. You can you can do all of that, and hear some people who have done something like this, and maybe there's a bit of inspiration there. Really, that's all. Yeah, that, that's the idea. Last thoughts, Bavin?
1: Anything else you want to? Or oh, what's next for you, Peter? Peter, maybe ah, next five I knew years.
2: That's that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I alluded it to it to it earlier. So I'm yeah. focusing very much on getting a formal accreditation as a coach. Oh yeah. Um, and then I'd really like to kind of take some of those skills um, in, into um, i've got a real passion for leadership development that's really where i'd like to go so i'll do i'll do some one-to-one coaching um, but but very much and you know i'd like to if i can bring that into the optometry sector but um, I, i'm i'm very much looking at all you know anyone in a role of leadership whether that's uh, professional leadership whether it's in uh, a religious organization, a voluntary organization, a social organization. I think there's just so much stuff that I'm learning that I'm just very keen to continue learning and Mm. and then, you know, share what I'm learning as 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 that moves along.
0: Sure, sure. What's the name of the coaching company?
2: My coaching business goes under the, the brand of Well Man Walking. So right. I'm, I'm very much, um, and, and it's a bit of a play on words. Obviously, there was a very famous movie called Dead Man Walking. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like I'm trying to walk myself into wellness. So walking in the hills is one of my passions. I was in the Bretton Beacons for a couple of days last weekend. And, and yeah, just w- that that's reflects my journey. And then I have a separate little business that I'm not doing anything with at the moment, but it's called Four Seas Leadership. Um, which uh, the four C's stands for courageous, curiosity, compassion and connection. And that's really the, the essence of the message I want to bring and develop in leaders along the lines of what we've i shared and discussed with you guys today
0: brilliant like it so yeah good Same thoughts time. behind the two titles that's something that's useful mm. to to take on board as well because you have to have a good name for the product and a good name for what you're trying to do mm. okay great brilliant. stuff yeah I, I mean
1: we could be talking for hours, hours. Fascinating. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely yeah. fascinating thank you so
2: well, much thank you very peter. much thank very a, much for the, the invite yeah. i've really enjoyed chatting to you guys yeah, yeah. 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 thank and you day for day
0: coming day. on board and being so open peter my pleasure Thanks for joining us for this edition of the More Than Optics podcast. Make sure you're kept up to date with all our future episodes by following or subscribing to our channel. And don't forget to check us out on social media at More Than Optics. We'll see you next time.